welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the podcast, I am continuing the discussion about how the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, is affecting all of us. And today we're going to be talking about the pandemic, the economy, and their impact on communities of color in veterinary medicine. So since mid to late March or so of this year, 2020, for folks that will be listening to this years from now, most of the U.S. and other countries have been under a stay-at-home order, stay-at-home orders to try to control the spread of COVID-19. So basically, outside, closed. <laughs> we have been able to go out to buy groceries and other essentials, but for the most part, many businesses were closed. Small businesses, large businesses just couldn't go. Many office workers are working from home, as are the three of us, me and my two guests today. Unemployment hit a high, not seen since the Great Depression, and many people globally have been feeling the financial pressure really closing in the longer that we are under stay-at-home exercise. So as we record this show, cities and states in the U.S. are in the midst of phased openings. I personally just went to my first dinner outside patio yesterday, first time since March, It was awesome, but a little weird (laughs) after so long. But, you know, we're finding that things are starting to bounce back just a little bit. But there's some questions about who is positioned well to bounce back. So for this discussion, I'm joined by Drs. Matt Saloy and Bridget Bain, economists from the American Veterinary Medical Association. Hi. Hi. So as is our custom on the show, I asked my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So Matt, we're going to start with you. Oh, goodness. Well, thanks for thanks for having me here, Lisa. Really happy to be here with Bridget. Um, just real quick, three words I use to describe myself as uh, husband, father, economist, and in that order, it kind of gives me in a nutshell. My passion is using economics to translate data into insights to make for healthier people, planet, and animals. And Dr. Bain. Yeah, so my name is Bridget Bain, as Lisa said, and I am an, an economist with the American Veterinary Medical Association. I'm really excited to be here to discuss these really critical, timely topics with you. I've been with the AVMA since 2013, so uh, this is this is uh, really new for me, uh, as it is for everyone, but uh, it's good to be here. Thank you both. I'm delighted to have you both on the show. You all are but the yings to my yangs, we've been a lot of time chatting together about all kinds of data. And so it's great to have you here. So why don't we dive right in? So Matt, how would you currently characterize the economy? <laughs> well, my, my favorite analogy has been uh, right now, what's happened to our economy is like what happens when you put pineapple on a pizza, it just kind of gets ruined. <laughs> Sorry for all those that like pineapple on your pizza, but it's not for me. You know, I, I think we're starting to come out of that. But basically what, what happened, and Bridget can add more context to it for sure, is, you know, it, things came to a grinding halt. Activity, grocery may have maintained, and we definitely saw some huge increases there as people were stockpiling. But entertainment, travel, you know, health, beauty, food, and service food activities, they just all came to a grinding, a grinding halt. 
And with that, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners have been tracking the unemployment numbers, you know, 40 million plus Americans, one in four households facing decreases in income and unemployment. And it's just um, something we haven't seen outside of wartime. And so we are seeing some more positive signs. We can certainly talk more about that, but that's been the immediate impact. It's been very, very much outside textbook economics. So yeah, we were talking about that a few weeks ago as we were discussing doing this show and, and both of you said, yeah, we don't, this is different. (laughs) In the book. (laughs) For sure. So Bridget, what does some of this mean, at least for the profession, big picture, big landscape? You know, I was looking at the news uh, the last couple of days, and it's so alarming that when we look at year over year decrease in personal consumption expenditure, it's down 21.6%. And 21.6% may sound all right, that's still less than a third. But when we look at the fact that GDP is 70%, of consumer spending, and we're down 21% over last year, it's really alarming. And to put that into context, veterinary services is a part of personal consumption expenditure, right? Most households spend at the veterinarian from disposable income. So it really, it's it's a cycle that we have to figure out how we're going to get out of, because now that we have people that are spending less, we have employers They can't employ people because nobody's purchasing in their stores. So now people are unemployed, as Matt just alluded to. And it's just a vicious cycle. And I think that um, we will definitely not escape this in the veterinary profession. We will feel the brunt of it. We're not immune, as is the rest of the economy and and, and other business owners. You know, veterinary practices largely stayed open during this time. It's an essential service. But I can only imagine that the caseload was down. Yeah. Any idea, any stats, any data on just just how much maybe? Yeah, we've got some good data. AVMA did a survey. We had over 2,000 practices respond to that. You're going to get a pulse of what uh, April and May. And uh, one of the best sources I go to is the, the Vet Success Industry Tracker on their website. And you could see, you know, starting March 15th is where things started to fall off the mountain and continue to bottom out until around the end of March, early April, where nationally, things on average were down about 20% uh, year over year. Revenue was down 20% and invoices, which is probably the best proxy for for visits that we've got, was also down similarly. Since then, we've kind of been in recovery mode, which is really good. You kind of, this this sharp down, not quite a sharp recovery, but but close close enough to it where nationally we are back in positive territory, seeing some year over year positives versus revenue this time last year. But there's just a great variability in where that recovery, how that recovery looks across states. Things are, I think, roaring is the right term in Texas. If you look at Texas, their their, their revenue gains are stronger than what they were pre-COVID right now. But New York, on the other hand, is still struggling. They haven't quite hit that hit that recovery mode yet. So there's just there's a great variability. I think we're going to continue to see that for the next several months. So while downturns in the economy certainly affect everyone, and this one has has touched everyone, right? When you can only pretty much go to the grocery store and home, that's it. I mean, parks are even closed in in some places, right? So it, it affects everyone. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, populations for whom downturns are especially problematic. Certainly some some really high risk populations that you know, a time like this that is kind of a, a once in a 
whatever this <laughs> entry once in you know kind of thing it really has a, a major impact on some communities so you know matt what do you, what do you have to say who's hurting the most not that, yeah. not that this is the hurt <laughs> <laughs> and, and let's hope this is a once in a century thing right but we don't know that's what's so un, uncertain and, and i think where a lot of concern is is if we this doesn't necessarily there's nothing to say that this isn't a once in a, a once in a hundred year thing, there are vulnerable populations out there, and if you look at the distribution of poverty, areas that lack access to to transportation, areas that have crowded housing, areas with uh, poor accessibility to to healthcare, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the CDC uh, publishes a social vulnerability index, which they have geocoded, and you can map that and look at that across different uh, zip codes and counties. And it shows you on a scale from zero to one, those areas that are socially vulnerable because of these types of, these types of factors. And we have to protect these, these vulnerable populations. You know, minorities, people of color, that they are at risk. And you look at the distribution of population demographics and like close to home here in the Chicago area, you look at the share of the population that that's black or a minority and you look at the share of COVID cases and COVID deaths. I mean, there's a clear skewness here, right? I mean, I think that just underscores if we didn't understand, and I think we should have understand that there were health inequalities socially, we're, we're certainly painfully aware of those right now. And so it's taking the extra measures to ensure that there's a safety net in place to help support those vulnerable populations. Do we, I mean, so we often see a lot of these kinds of things in, in really just super inner cities, right? Like when we talk about Chicago, DC, New York, you know, Seattle's where there are larger populations, larger uh, diverse po- populations. Do we see these kinds of patterns also in, in rural areas? I mean, we know that it's hard, some areas in terms of the distribution of the veterinary workforce, sometimes harder to get folks to go into rural practice, but just because of the, the economics. We do. I mean, these trends, these trends transcend geographic location, I think. And in some ways, they're, they're more endemic to, to rural areas. When you look at the, the time spread of, of COVID-19, since it can't come into our lives, you know, a lot of the heavy Urban areas, densely populated. I mean, this is close to home for Bridget in, in New York. They were hit kind of first. They, they were hit hard. We've start, started to see the rural creep of that right now. I think that's kind of been going on the last few weeks. And there is going to be an impact there. I mean, that impact is going to be different than, than in the urban areas. I mean, it's no surprise that, you know, the citizens of Palo Alto can, can respond to COVID-19 in ways that Panhandle of Oklahoma cannot because of accessibility and transportation and, and so forth. Good point. So let's talk about our students and then we'll maybe talk a bit about some other kinds of larger practice issues. So for applicants that are coming into vet school, it's probably not very well known that, you know, about 40%, 44% or so this year really have had to rely heavily on student aid, so student loans, to get through undergrad, right? So those individuals are coming in. I mean, yeah, so that means that's, you know, nearly 60 or 65-ish percent of, of applicants actually are coming to vet school with zero debt, right? They're reporting zero debt. A lot of families are helping out and, you know, folks are 
are really kind of grinding it out financially for those undergrad degrees. But about 40% are really quite indebted. They're coming in with an average of about thirty-two dollars to $33,000 in undergraduate student aid debt, right? So, um, and those folks tend to be from (laughs) cities, from rural areas. They they are coming from economically depressed backgrounds more often. And just for the record, that's about 28% of the population of our applicant population are coming from low income backgrounds. And so we've got this group of students, they're coming in already kind of with some debt, right? And we already, we spend a lot of time in the profession talking about debt load at the time of graduation from our programs. You know, Bridget, what's happening? So, you know, Bridget, you do this senior survey and you look at those, you know, some of those gigantic numbers that students are reporting that they're anticipating at the time of graduation. What does the current economy mean for them? Yeah, I think that when we look historically at the students' debt load, we we have percentage of students that graduate with debt in excess of what it costs to graduate. And, and, you know, what we've determined is that there are life happen situations, like you so nicely put it, that they're not just financing tuition and cost of living, but they're financing life that they need to prepare for, you know, and then just in addition to that, a lack of, of information and financial acumen, business acumen and students, I've had students tell me that, you know, I'm taking extra. So in case I need to repay it, then I have it. And I'm like, no, this is accumulating interest on, and this is unnecessary to save your, your loans. But certainly I think that um, students coming from more urban areas, they would definitely need to to really amp up on those debt levels because perhaps parents that might have been willing and able to help them prior to COVID are, you know, stripped of the ability to do that now. So I think that students will definitely take the brunt of this. You know, as we were talking about rural and, and urban areas, you know, I I was, people were asking me like, you know, why is New York so bad? My sister and my mom is asking me and I'm like, well, you know, more than half of the population of New York state live in less than 1% of the physical area. It's insane, right? So, you know, you have students that, that they're living with their parents and grandparents and they're, you know, if they get sick, that's money that needs to go out the door. So you have all these factors that are stacked against them. And I think we will definitely see an increase in, in the amount of debt that students have in excess of tuition because of all these COVID-related factors for sure. Yes, yes. So so next year, so everybody that's listening, when, when Bridget and Matt released their data for, you know, graduating debt loads for 2021, just know that this is that we're probably going to expect those numbers to be quite high for some of them, right? In an informal student check-in survey that I did last month, we found that 28% of survey participants indicated that they were experiencing serious financial strain during this time, having, you know, some of them went back home, some of them are stuck on campus. I mean, you know, there was a percentage, 18% that said that they didn't even have stable internet. And so oftentimes we're like, oh, but everybody, if you've got a phone, who wants to go to school on their phone for eight hours a day? And that might be their only real substantive, you know, tool, right? And so, and then in some areas, certainly rural areas, I think that that folks are, forget that about one in four Americans actually don't have reliable internet access Mm -hmm. anyway, right? And so, you know, folks can be afraid of 5G, but some folks... (laughs) 
so, so yeah, I think that we're going to see heightened, you know, debt loads. And, and so, you know, what is that? What does this really mean for, you know, incoming vet students that are starting this fall, some of whom may be on campus, some might not be on campus, some might go to campus, leave campus early, you know, the, the, landscape for what fall semesters is still very, very much undecided at a lot of institutions. And so, you know, what does this, what does this mean? Because you, you actually have to have a place to live and like, like outside of, (laughs) you know, being on campus. I think it means we don't know the answer to what it means. Let's be humble, right? We're dealing with the most uncertain environment of our lifetimes, I think. And so I think, you know, any advice, if that's what we can even call it right now, is to be as nimble as possible financially, socially, and and, and in other areas of our lives. And this goes the same for, you know, student debt and decisions that you make as as a student, which they're one of the most important decisions that you make in your life that unfolds the future for you forever. And we know through various surveys, you know, that the Merck Wellbeing um, that you know, what's driving, what's driving some of the well-being issues we're seeing. What comes to the top is is student debt, the overwhelming levels of of debt. It's it's the need to ensure that we're not over leveraging ourselves as individuals in that process. It's always been the case, and now more than ever, you serve yourself by being well informed. So understand the cost of an education understand the return on investment in that education and make sure that you are are okay with what that looks like. And it, and it comes down to having a plan, I think, as well. How are you going to accommodate that debt? You know, I've, I've joked, you know, no one, no one uh, at eight years old dreams of being an economist. <laughs> Just, you don't, you don't, you don't see that. But this is one of those very unique and interesting professions that you, you do. You have these dreams from a very early age that I think in many ways are bigger dreams than a child has of being, you know, a heart surgeon, because it's just the connectivity that we have with with animals. It's so powerful at a very young age. And you do get that. You get this desire to be in this profession more than anything. And you've told me, Lisa, some of the absurd answers that you've gotten in some of your surveys, how much are you willing to pay? Well, millions of dollars, you know, or, or maybe billions now. I don't know with inflation. <laughs> Let's hope not. But I think what we need is to, you know, have these conversations, provide the information that creates that transparency so that everyone has the information they need to make the choices that they have to make. So what are some of the ways that the current state of things may disproportionately impact veterinarians and clients from underrepresented or marginalized background. Bridget, want to comment? Yeah, I I mean, for sure. Certainly, there are so many issues that disproportionately affect underrepresented minorities and and folks from marginalized backgrounds, you know, not just in veterinary medicine, but that certainly it spills over. Certainly, I think that folks that are in close housing areas and in, in city areas and in urban areas, they are at such higher risk just because it's so much more difficult to, you know, to, to social distance when, when you live with, you know, three generations in one apartment. And, and so, you know, the impact and the expense is so much higher for these folks. 
you know, we've seen historically that a lot of the, the, the large proportion of spending at the veterinarian typically comes from, there's two factors. We look at the, the relationship that folks have with their pet, whether they see them as, you know, family or property, and as well as the disposable income. So to a large degree, folks who already could not afford veterinary care will be even more at risk for not being able to access care. And but we do still have a large population that are that are able to spend just because they can afford it. Um, but when we do look at m- minorities and underrepresented groups, they are certainly at a larger risk. You know, if you're making a decision between food, groceries and and, and veterinary care, that that decision is is pretty clear, you know. And and so I think, you know, we really have to get creative as a profession and understand the needs of the, the society that we serve, you know, it, it can be an ethical issue, right? It, it's, a, it's a matter of who deserves care versus who can afford care. And, and that's kind of, you know, a, a tough thing to, to straddle, a line to straddle. But I think it'll certainly impact underrepresented communities as has so many issues with healthcare and jobs and unemployment and, and so many things. It will be a serious impact, but it's really a great opportunity for the profession to, to get creative and to figure out, how they can best serve everyone who needs pet care and, and can't access it. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen, you know, I, I tell people all the time that necessity and crisis are the mothers, <laughs> are the parents of invention, right? And so we're seeing some really cool things with telemedicine. You know, I, I had my dog, Barkley, the famous Barkley, like his teeth were clean. Fortunately, he was you know, I just, he's only, he's less than 10 pounds. So I handed him through the window, <laughs> you know, I handed him through the window to to get his teeth cleaned last month. And so, you know, those are, are certainly things that we can do, but, you know, it, it's a little concerning. And we did a, I did a show a few months ago with Amanda Bates from North Carolina State University on job hunting during the pandemic and how, you know, new grads largely seem to have had their, their jobs in place. And there don't seem to have been a lot of offers rescinded at this time, but you know, what does next year look like? And for folks that want to start a practice, you know, I'm guessing this is probably not the best time to do that. I don't know. The economists. So recovery is going to be some time. <laughs> Silence, right? <laughs> Let's take a deep breath. <laughs> you know, it's going to be individual and regionally specific. I think you really have to look at your circumstances. We can't I, I would avoid making a blanket, you know, whether or not it's a good idea. But I will say recovery is going to take quite a bit of time because even if the economy recovers, according to the major macro indicators, they're going to, there's going to be some disruptions in the microfibers of our economy that are going to take months, if not years, to recover. We don't know what the long-run implications are of 40 million people that have just lost their jobs. We just don't know. And while we'd like and we do suspect a lot of them will get them back, we know that many of them will not. Small businesses, entrepreneurial areas are, are at risk. And it has been the entrepreneur that's been a driver of a captain of industry and a driver of economic activity in our in our economy for for decades. And so we just we just don't know. I think what we can do is prepare ourselves for you know inevitable recovery, and there will be some some small hanging um, some small wins, some quick wins, low hanging fruit that I think we can we can achieve by getting businesses reopened, jobs back into the into the job coffers. So to speak, but um, but some of these other these other uh, impacts that will have ripple effects. I think we've got to prepare ourselves. It's going to be some time before things become the new normal that they are going to be. 
you're you're such a a beacon of light, Matt. <laughs> well, there's there's <laughs> they don't call economics the dismal science for a reason, right? You know, the encouraging news is recovery will happen. You look at the history of economic downturns. You know, this is unlike any other downturn in a really important way. This is driven by an event, like a natural disaster. In fact, this is like a natural disaster. What makes this wholly unique is that this is a global natural disaster that's happening everywhere all at once. Usually it's regionalized through a tsunami, a major hurricane event, earthquake, something like that. But this is, this is a virus that's affected people everywhere. And so there's a, there's a bit of uniqueness to that. The encouraging news with event-driven downturns is they tend to be they, t- they tend to recover more quickly. They're not as long-lasting. They're not tied to the economic fundamentals. Like the the, the 2001 recession was, you know, basically a, a bust of the dot-com bubble, for lack of, of of a dissertation on the 2008 recession. It was a sub subprime mortgage, and and so there were some disruptions in the economic fundamentals in the economy that caused that. But for all intents and purposes, not that there weren't weak spots in our weak spots in our economy pre-COVID, but the major indicators were saying we were doing good. You know, we were we were not anywhere near close to a recession. Maybe at least a couple of years or so off from it. So I, I think I think that that's encouraging. We were strong before. Our economy is still still strong. We're still resilient. The veterinary profession is resilient. I think there is there is strong hope for that recovery to come. So for those of us who are not economists. Is this a recession or a depression or have we named it? Is it the bottom fell out and 2020 continues to just plague us? What, 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 is, what, what do we call this period? <laughs> this was the question I asked Bridget almost every time we had a meeting the first few weeks. What do you think? What, what are we going to call this, right? Yeah, I, I don't know what we call this. We call this, we've never seen this before. <laughs> That's what we call this. I mean, it's funny when you look at the unemployment chart, it, 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 you know, it's stable. And then there's this crazy dive and you're like, oh my God, if you look back 75 years, you cannot see something that compares to the uninsurance claims that, that has been made during this short period of time. I don't know what we call it, but it's, I, I don't want to call it back again. I wish this is the last time it appears. You know, so the technical definition of a recession, I believe, and uh, I may embarrass myself for those that have an economics textbook in front of them, but is two consecutive quarters of of decreases in in economic activity. You know, this is the funny thing about economics. I think uh, one of the headlines in the news yesterday was economists say we we are in a recession. And my wife looked at me and I and said, I thought you already said we were in a recession. How is this breaking news? And so, you know, we like to tell people things when they already know them. That's sort of the the, the joke about economics. But yeah, I, I think this is a recession. I, I would hesitate to call it a depression for the very reasons that I, I kind of spelled out before is that this isn't, this isn't tied right now to the fundamentals. Not yet. I think that's why we need to make sure that we've got the appropriate policies in place, the appropriate economic safety nets for small businesses and households, like we did with the CARES Act and, and, and forthcoming ones to make sure that they're solvent and, and can weather the storm, because that's what this is. Just a couple last questions. Any advice? I mean, you've given, you said, have a plan. Students have a plan. Professionals have a plan. Have a plan. But we also know that most folks, at least here in the States, are, you know, one to two paychecks away from utter disaster. And we're, we're past that one to two paychecks. <laughs> Any, you know, uplifting advice for these folks? Yes, I think there is. I would say, you know, I think we've seen the worst of this right now. 
we we are talking about potential resurgences in the fall and late summer. We don't know what that quite means yet, or even if that will will come to be. But states are reopening. The good news in the latest employment numbers is that some jobs were coming back to the economy. And I think that was a sign of uh, people being put back to work. And so I think there there is great cause for optimism optimism there. But it's you know it, it's the cautious optimism, right? Like let's proceed let's proceed very very carefully here. I think the advice for veterinary practices and and small businesses generally is 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 clear. Is that I think we've gotten through the stage where there was a need to be resilient in the crisis, and we're trying our best right now to return to what we want to call the new normal or the next normal or what we thought was once normal, the opportunity here is to reimagine what that next normal looks like uh, because we've had this discontinuous shift in, in institutions and in companies and in this relationship between businesses and, and consumers. And, you know, one, I think it was McKinsey and company that positioned this new economy as the contactless economy. So even if we, we do reopen and encouraging news like going outside to, to eat on the patio of a favorite restaurant, as we continue various phases of of reopening, there's still going to be some hesitation until we're until we're comfortable. And I think it's this opportunity to partner with your clients, partner with your with your customers to reimagine how you provide your services as a veterinary practice, as a restaurant, as as any business, to make sure that you understand what their needs are and to provide those needs and still contribute value to that client relationship. Yeah, Bridget, do you have any? any yeah, uh, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit biased as an economist, but I think it's so crucial to have a budget. I think it's so crucial as a business owner to not be scared of your profit and loss statement and your balance sheet to understand what your numbers look like. I read somewhere that the average American spends $1.2 for every $1 they earn. That's a problem, right? <laughs> you don't want to spend more than you earn. I think now more than ever, we've been taught an incredible lesson, whether we wanted to be in class or not, that it's, it's really crucial that you prepare for times like this. You know, we can't, we cannot foresee every single thing that'll hit the economy. As much as we want to look at the news and try to determine the impact on the markets, some things just hit your shores and you have to be ready. So I think, you know, don't hide from the numbers as much as you can bear it. I think it's critical to understand a budget, understand, know what you owe, know what you make, know what you will or, you know, make a plan. As Matt said, I think it's critical. I, I really am a huge advocate of practice owners and, and, and other veterinarians just understanding, you know, their transactions, what they produce in a week, in a month, in a quarter. It's critical. It's crucial. Uh, you can't have good medicine without good business. And you can't have a healthy lifestyle without having good financial practices. It's, it's so much research that shows that it's tied to mental health. Definitely, I think now more than ever, it's important to, to make a plan and, and figure out your numbers, figure out what it costs for you to live and, and be very judicious about it. So I feel both seen and dragged a little bit because of the number of Amazon boxes that are currently coming to my <laughs> I think there's been a lot of that, that point two that's over that point, you know, the 1.2. Yeah, I mean, I think pandemic spending you know, there are a lot of sectors that have done just horribly clearly. I mean, there's, you know, folks are closing and small businesses and, and yet there seems to be 87 Amazon boxes between my daughter and I coming to the house on a regular basis. So I'm silently hearing, don't do that. <laughs> so so <laughs> keep spending, uh, spend within your means, live within your means. Yes. Great advice. 
<laughs> so any predictions after, you know, which is a strange way to end, given both of you have said, we don't, we don't really know what's going to happen next. And, you know, there's always all of these fun and yet somehow predictive memes of like, okay, well, are the locusts coming next versus the, you know, the mad hornets or whatever it was, the killer, killer bees or something. But, you know, what, what are the predictions for the rest of 2020? A few things. I think we'll we'll continue to see the states begin their their reopening. I think we'll see consumers in general be be cautious, uh, but eager to return to uh, what they called normal before. Wanting to, you know, from eating in restaurants to watching a movie to taking a walk in public places like a like a mall, for example. I think the prediction is it's going to look a little bit different, though. I think we'll need to get used to seeing people in, in face masks and, and need to be okay with that. Potentially, we may be seeing you know temperature checks on, on flights before you board. We may see the emergence of disposable menus because of the, the health risks with that. You know, I think we will get to a place of, of where we're better and where we're more comfortable and uh, because our economy is resilient. It's shown that nationally and, and globally. But I think the prediction is just, just be ready for things to be a little bit different for a little bit longer. I was really encouraged to learn. I heard a veterinarian say that, you know, the profession has embraced telemedicine more in the last 30, 60 days than they have in the last 30 years. So I think, you know, it's it's certainly not all bad when you look at the trends of, of GDP over the last hundred years, it's trending upward. So, you know, we always come out of, you know, whatever we, we face. And I think people will come out stronger. They will figure out what was the new normal, what works. As, as you mentioned, that need is the mother of, of innovation and invention. So I think, I think we'll figure it out. I don't think we should be discouraged. I think we should be cautious. And as Matt says, the new, the new normal will look really different than what, than what we're used to. But certainly, I think we can be hopeful that, you know, if it takes us a year, five years or 10 years, we will emerge and we will be uh, doing producing well again. Awesome. That I think is a great place to end with nice kind of upbeat, predictive. Don't you love economists, folks, listeners? <laughs> that was, hey, Lisa, I thought that was pretty upbeat, right? <laughs> economists, right? <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me to talk about the uh, pandemic and the economy. I've learned a lot. And I also still got a notification about an Amazon package that will be arriving <laughs> to, to hold the line a little bit. On so this has been another episode of the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. My guests, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to like the podcast Facebook page, which is called AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. So with that, I will bid you adieu. Thanks for listening. Thank you.